if you're a data scientist and you're listening to this, you'll understand this very clearly. I'm trying to make it so data scientists don't have to copy and paste transformation code between their untitled notebooks. Because that's what they do. <laughs> because that's what I did. This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. Today we have Simba Cotter here who talked to us about FeatureForm. FeatureForm is a virtual feature store, and Simba's going to explain what that is in just a moment. Simba, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Let's ground everyone in, in what FeatureForm is, and maybe it helps actually, at one point you mentioned the inspiration for the name to me, Terraform, but for features. I don't know if that helps people understand what FeatureForm is, but what is FeatureForm? Yeah, it's a platform to allow you to define, manage, and serve features. And for people who are listening who aren't machine learning people, a feature is not a product feature. In this case, a feature is just a model input. So models take inputs, which we call features, and it generates an output, a prediction, an inference. So yeah, the problem that we solve is for data scientists, they are constantly iterating on uh, the features. They're constantly taking raw data. If you're Spotify, you have all these listens, for example. You might want to generate the top genre that the user likes. You might want to know, hey, what's the user's top artist this week? Consideration on features. You have all of these ways to kind of take raw data, generate features out of them. A feature store is a way to standardize that. So going to, you mentioned already the Terraform analogy. Before Terraform, I remember having a lot of scripts and I remember looking at my AWS console and seeing many, many instances that sometimes I would be good enough to name or someone on my team would be good enough to name, but otherwise it was just a mess. Like there was no, no way to organize anything. There was no versioning. Like it was just kind of just a wild west of infrastructure. And that's kind of where we are today with data pipelines for machine learning. Like people write their own data pipelines. They push them on Spark, or they have some crazy like hack together pod on Kubernetes that they use to generate the features. FeatureForm tries to standardize that. We give a framework to define these things and then a framework to do versioning, governance, access control. And finally, features aren't useful if you can't serve them for training and for inference, so we do that as well. So features are, as you mentioned, the inputs to a model. So these are, if I break down create a model, you, you have algorithms, and those, I'm not going to say are commoditized, but they're often an open source. Everyone kind of has access to the latest models, and they're, they're often just one command away. And then the other inputs you control are kind of maybe some parameters to tune, how you apply those algorithms, and the features. And so largely, the features kind of maybe make the bulk of the inputs to, to your machine learning work. I would go as far as to say as a feature is usually the only place you can actually inject domain knowledge as a data scientist. Like you can kind of get there with the architecture. Like I don't want to say it's 100%, but on average, like that's where you input your domain knowledge. Got it. And these features are columns in a database, maybe. Yeah, it could be just a column in a database. A feature could be an embedding, so like a vector. It could be a whole image. It could be a, a feature. It's the same thing that goes into a model. Typically, a feature stores its NLP or tabular data. So a lot of text, vectors, just floats, you know, strings, et cetera. 
And there's a whole kind of data pipeline that goes into creating these features for end consumption. One, to like even prepare them from their raw, terrible state to something usable. And then two, there might be further optimization specific to machine learning, normalizing them to a certain numerical value or something. And all of that is encompassed in these feature pipelines. Is that right? Yes. And what we've called feature stores, I think a lot of us historically, is the place where that end prepared and normalized feature gets stored for serving. But you have a, a kind of a broader definition of feature store. Is that right? Yes. So let me give some context first. I used to go into sales calls and I would always start, if they'd heard of a feature store, I would have to immediately be like, cool, I have to like unteach some things and reteach some things because everyone has a different definition for a feature store. And there are products that I would argue are in any other space would be completely different categories, but they both call themselves feature stores. So it creates more confusion in the space. So after having a lot of these conversations, talking to a lot of the other creators of, of lots of the other feature stores, both internal to, to platform teams and, and, and other vendors, I kind of realized there was three categories that, that captures them all. The one that we call a literal feature store, which it literally stores features. It's like a cache or database for storing features. And I've found it to be usually not solving the problem at hand for the majority of organizations. The reason being that a feature store provides abstractions, a higher level abstraction of what a feature is, a training set is, a label is, all these concepts, transformations. But a feature in particular, like when I talked about the Spotify example, the feature was the top genre in the last month. Like that's the feature. That's closer to the transformation. So if you don't own the transformation piece, it's almost like the wrong level of abstraction. Because if I want to iterate on the feature, but I have to iterate outside the feature store, and the feature store is just literally like like bits of, of that happen to be the final representation. So we've kind of kept the feature store name just because it, it is how we describe ourselves, but we invented the idea of a virtual feature store which looks more like an orchestrator plus metadata. It's kind of an application layer on top of your infrastructure that is aware of, of what you do as a data scientist, as a machine learning practitioner. Got it. So in feature form, I, I might describe tasks that need to be done, and those get farmed out to other pieces of infrastructure, some of which we're familiar with, right? Task queues or orchestration frameworks. And I can mix and match those, if I understand correctly. So let me maybe explain in a very emotional way the problem at hand. If you're a data scientist and you're listening to this, you'll understand this very clearly. I'm trying to make it so data scientists don't have to copy and paste transformation code between their untitled notebooks, because that's what they do, (laughs) because that's what I did. I used to have a ton of untitled notebooks. I used to have a Google Doc of SQL queries and SQL query snippets that were just useful to use. And I am not alone in that. I know that having talked to a lot of different orgs, I just said this to someone over the weekend. I was, said the same analogy, the untitled notebook. And she's a data scientist at Google. And she's like, I feel personally attacked <laughs> by that by comments because it was so clear to her that, yeah, I mean, that's what people do. So the problem to be solved is an organizational problem. Now, there's another problem, which is, you know, handling low latency serving, handling n terabytes of data. We would call that the processing problem. We actually try to solve as little of that as possible. We push that off to our partners, 
like Databricks, you know, Confluent, like Redis, like Datastax, you name it, like we work with them. And we just solve the application layer, which is just giving those abstractions so that data scientists can not just write code and notebooks, but actually define transformations, features, labels, training sets. Makes total sense. We want to go into the kind of origin story for features form, which I, I assume is largely your story and maybe some of these pain points. So let's get into that sooner than later. What caused you to want to work on this? So I was at Google for a bit, left Google and started my first company. I didn't start my first company because I had this amazing idea. Well, I had no idea, actually. I had a name and a logo. I didn't have this, you know, illusions of grandeur. I just was kind of really young and, and, and just the idea of working at a big tech company for 40 years and retiring was so like not what I wanted to do with my life. But I just was like, I'm going to start a company just to, you know, jump in the deep end and just see where, where life will take me. And, uh, you know, it took a while, but uh, eventually it started to really work out um, profitable. We were doing well. And the part that's relevant here is that we were handling over 100 million monthly active users data and we were doing recommendations. So we were handling, we were doing big recommender system models. We create user embeddings, create item embeddings. We did a lot of very cutting edge stuff, but even like we were doing it five, six years ago. And now it's like starting to become kind of mainstream. Some of the methodologies that we, we were using, I mean, we didn't make them up like Google uh, at YouTube released a paper that we based it off of many years ago now. But yeah, there I found that most of our value, like driving, at that point, we weren't trying to make our models better to get a new paper written. We were trying to get our models better because it actually equaled user value, which in the end equaled revenue for us. And uh, we realized that iterating on the model very scary, very painful. It's like a black box. Like it might work, but if it works in training, it might not work in production because we're doing recommender systems. We're working with humans. Humans don't work like raw data or really, really hard to do machine learning when it comes to people. So we really didn't like iterating on the model. We like kind of using generic models, like you said, off the shelf-ish models and focusing more on the features because the features we can control. I'll give a very specific example. One of the biggest like point increases in one of our models' performance, this model in particular was able to predict if a user would subscribe. Biggest point of value we did, we added the user agent like kind of parsed out well, which essentially was what kind of devices is this user on. Turns out if someone's on an iPhone X, um, that was brand new, an iPhone X and uh, you cross that with location, like, you know, they're in San Diego, they're on iPhone X, and all these other details, that actually tells you a lot about, about the user, and it would make them all predict way better. And the best part is we understood why. It wasn't like, huh, we added this extra layer, we did this, you know, crazy thing we read in the paper, and it works better. We don't know why, but let's just put it in production. It was, hey, this works better, and it makes sense that it would work better. It's signal. So we're spending a ton of our time in feature engineering, and then we got into the problem I kind of was talking about, the organizational problem. Like so much crazy stuff we did. I mean, if you make a lot of slide decks, if you were to open Google Slides right now, I'm sure you have the same presentation of like underscore V4, underscore final, underscore don't touch. On, you know, we had the same things. It just was in our notebooks. And so feature form or at the time, just our data platform was a way to mostly solve that. And we realized it was really valuable. I realized that this was a much bigger opportunity. 
I actually wanted to ask you about the uh, the old company. Is, is that still in existence, but you've kind of gone 100% on feature form? Uh, no. So we were using the revenue to kind of start what was feature form was originally called Stream SQL. And we told all of our customers that it was kind of a one year, like if you're on the contract, we'll honor the contract, but we're not doing any new feature requests. And if you want to get off or stop paying, like we let people exit a contract early. So it was not easy to do, but it was the right move. And there's a whole long story of how, because I had co-founders and it was an interesting <laughs> time in my life, to say the least. I can't imagine. But regardless, you made the tough decisions as a group. And, and now here you are on feature form. And then the decision, open source or not, how did that play out? It was actually very easy. I, I decided to open source because I just can't imagine a winner in this space not being open source. Even though I love open source, I think open source is great. I'm not going to say it was like totally from like a ethical reason or anything. It was entirely just like a business case. Like companies that win in the data space and the ops space for open source. There are exceptions, like Snowflake is an exception, but you're kind of fighting upstream, I think, if you try to go proprietary. If you go open source, I mean, the point is like, if you look at any big data company, even Snowflake, like Snowflake makes like 40 million a year off of just Capital One. Like if you look at most of these companies, they make all of their money off of a handful of Fortune 500s. Whether you cut off the long tail of revenue or not, you know, you're probably still fine. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. The bulk of the revenue is going to come from enterprise contracts and they're going to pay for those whether you're open source or not. Good. And you've had a good run in open source, it looks like. I was looking at this launch was maybe a little over a year ago, a big bump of interest about a year ago. What was that? Yeah. Um, when we first released it, I think what it was, was there was a new player in the space. Like it was uh, a space where I think feature stores in general, I think a lot of people were, and maybe still are kind of disillusioned by this space. There's a lot of hype around it and they looked and they were confused. Again, partly because of the thing I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of people calling themselves feature stores that you know maybe caused more confusion. Is this a feature store? Is this a feature store? An example was a lot of feature stores, like literal feature stores didn't support transformations. And people were confused. They're like, well, isn't that the whole point? <laughs> so well, why would I use this thing? So I think, firstly, there was kind of a new player in the space. We had this new take, this virtual feature store idea, and that drove a ton of interest. We uh, launched on Hacker News and on Reddit, and that just drove a lot of hype and inbound interest. And it worked for us because it kind of, it was actually kind of a little overwhelming because <laughs> it was a little more than we were prepped for. And you know, a lot of people started using it. A lot of people found bugs, a lot of things are broken, but it was great. It allowed us to focus in, essentially stop marketing for a bit and just like focus on product. Now that we have, you know, a kind of an influx of, of users, let's make this thing better around them. And that's kind of what we did for a while. And then it wasn't until not, not that long ago that we really kind of started feeling like, hey, I think we've got something. Like, I think it's clicking, like people are using it and they love it. Let's really start putting more gas down. So maybe let's transition to going back into kind of what the MLOps landscape looks like. I worked in data processing before coming to scale. I was at Google Cloud working on this thing called Dataflow, and we worked with the TensorFlow team to help people with their feature pipelines. And one of the things we took as a rule was that, that you should capture the full transformation pipeline in training so that that could be reused when it came time for serving. You kind of wanted to like make sure you manipulate every bit the same so that the model sees them all the same way. And this idea of capturing the whole feature pipeline, 
I think it's not new, but we haven't really figured out a standard way of doing it. And that's part of what Feature Form gets at, if I understand correctly. I had a, a good talk with another feature store operator, which is they built Fever at LinkedIn. And the thing that we really agreed on was the problem to be solved for most of MLOps is abstractions. It's providing the right abstractions and then implying workflow based on it. Like the thing you're talking about, which is you know having all the feature transformation pipeline exist so that you can re- have training and, and inference be synchronized, essentially, like make sure that it's the same data going both ways. That's very true. I think it's just, um, it's almost too low level because a data scientist, like I don't really want to think about that. All I want to think about is this is what my transformation is. It is like an aggregate of, you know, user listens in the last month. And then, yeah, just like make it so. <laughs> like, you, you don't have to think about it. This is maybe my take on MLOps as a whole. I think MLOps, a lot of people, we create a separation in our head between the ML platform problem and the MLOps problem. The ML platform problem is I need to handle, you know, this much data. I need to be able to, you know, serve this type of model with this latency. These are processing oriented problems. And we call that platform problems because they're usually pretty binary. Usually you have some requirements and then once they're solved, they're solved. You can always make it better. Maybe it's cheaper. Maybe there's value in making them faster, but sometimes there isn't. Sometimes you're like, hey, like this thing, we make a prediction every 24 hours. So we don't care if it takes five minutes or an hour because it doesn't matter. That's the ML platform problem. I think the problem uh, that we focus on is, so that's like the day one problem. Like you don't have any ML if you haven't solved the ML platform problem, or you don't have any ML in production if you haven't solved your, your requirements. Whereas the platform problem is about scaling CPUs. The ops problem is about scaling humans. And it's actually a completely tangential problem in a way, because you can have thousands and thousands of data scientists working on relatively small data sets, which we see sometimes. And they're working in pandas, they're working like they don't need you know, giant spark cluster, but they have tons and tons of problems. And if I was to go to them and tell them, hey, like we handle streaming and this and that and this, they don't care. <laughs> Their problem is, hey, well, how do we do versioning? How we do access control? How do we handle, you know, if, if X person leaves the company, like we're screwed. Like this whole model, this whole team is like, is done. Those are the problems that we aim to solve. And I think we do that in providing the right abstractions and definitions and understanding the workflow that exists in ML, but really focusing on the management piece and the organizational piece. And once we have that data, we can assume that, hey, by the way, if you have a transformation, I need it in training mode, I need it in inference mode. So we can kind of orchestrate your infrastructure and we can, you know, we already know what you're going to do because you do what everyone else is going to do because everyone who does machine learning does inference and training. So, yeah, a little tangent maybe to what you were asking. So maybe I can give it to you to pull it back a little bit. But that's kind of how I think about the space. No, it makes total sense. And you're right. Explaining them is like a coordination between people problem versus a platform performance scale problem helps a lot. And and in the world of software, we, we arrived at kind of version control and get in these workflows that allow people to scale engineering teams. And I, I assume that it sounds like what you're describing is that feature form allows people to coordinate their work to scale machine learning teams. Exactly. And that's a problem to be solved. And unlike DevOps, where in DevOps, even in the early days of DevOps, there were at least some companies you could look at as gold standards, like Google like had Borg way before Kubernetes existed. There were some gold standards. And machine learning, I used to ask this on my podcast, like which company like does it really, really well? And I never really get an answer. It's, it's hard to think of a company. There are companies that do well, don't get me wrong, but I don't think anyone 
would say, yeah, this is the gold standard of how MLOps should be done. It's really a confusing, I guess, time in that way because there's no North Star to like aim towards. Like, oh, let's do it kind of like Google. It's just kind of uh, uh, everyone's sort of figuring it out at the same time. And like DevOps, like you mentioned, I think the people who will win are the ones who build point solutions that are focused on the right abstractions and workflows, like HashiCorp with Terraform, as an example. Like the hard part of Terraform was not the technical parts. It's not easy, but it's not something that no one else could have done. But coming up with the right abstraction, the API design, that's really hard. And also it doesn't scale well. You can't get a thousand people and build a better API than 10 people, which gives startups a really big benefit in the space. Like if you know Google wants to build the best feature store API, they're just going to have to find 10 really, really smart people to go after that problem. They're not going to be able to just throw a thousand people at it and beat us just off of sheer force. I certainly feel what you described is like a handful of unicorn startups have built machine learning platforms. And then we looked at them and it's like, oh, that actually helps in these ways, but I don't need this thing or that thing. In some ways, it felt like they were shipping a lot of their, not their org chart, but just the way they did work internal to the company it was specific to them. There were kind of dependencies that weren't generalizable. And so you're right, we, we haven't had a North Star on how this should work. And then you're also right that the abstraction is kind of a an intellectual challenge more than a, a computing one. How do you get the input? How do you how do you talk to the right machine learning engineers? How do you see the future and what this abstraction should look like when folks at uh, name your once big tech company, you know, struggle to, to build it. And maybe it's that they weren't trying to build a generalizable one. You know, they, they were trying to solve Airbnb's problem or, or Uber's problem or Google's problem. I think it's a really good question. And I still kind of, the short answer is there's kind of small fixes. Like you talk to someone, you pick up something small, you tweak something, but the big things, it's more of an art than a science. Like it's just like these moments where I was, even the virtual feature store idea, it wasn't a obvious thing. In fact, the way I came to it was I was selling what would kind of look, it was, you know, look more like a traditional feature store. Like it did all its own compute. It was more heavy. Like sure, we outsourced it to Flink and Pulsar, but it wasn't like something you could just easily deploy. It, it was a big solution, like a, how a lot of feature stores look today. And people wouldn't buy it because like they loved the idea. But when they came to like, hey, we have to replace this and rewrite this and do this. And hey, we're a major bank wasn't going to happen. There's no way. And so it was a little bit of that. And so that was the problem. But the idea was one day I just kind of, it clicked. I was just like, huh, like how if it looked like this? Um, Actually, someone had said virtual feature store in a different context. And I just really started thinking about that term, like virtual feature store. And I came up with a different conclusion of what that should mean. And it's kind of what, what we have today. I think the other thing is there's a lot of, if something worked at Airbnb or Uber or whatever, it doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone. Uh, a common thing here is if you talk to a lot of people who work on feature stores, they actually think that feature stores aren't really that useful if you're not doing streaming data or you don't have like real-time use cases. And I don't think that's right at all because I think the organizational issues are still there. It doesn't matter if you do batch. Like The problem to be solved is still versioning, managing, scaling out the lineage. All the things that you would have to do for feature pipelines still exist if it's batch, if it's done every 24 hours. But I think everyone's really kind of pigeonholed themselves around the specific problems that Uber and Airbnb had. And those problems, they had the organizational problems, but the problems that they literally couldn't 
just ignore or just hack around was the processing problems. Like if you can't actually do real-time feature serving or real-time feature engineering, you know, you can't do much. Like you have to solve that problem. So they put tons of resources into solving that. I mean, I know a lot of these internal platforms that have large teams that, you know, well-known companies don't have UIs and don't have feature sharing, which we consider to be a pretty critical part of, of feature stores. And I asked one person who, who I won't say the company, I won't say the person, but it was a well-known tech company, internal kind of platformed feature store that everyone in the company, not everyone, but a lot of people in the company use. I asked how they do feature sharing. He said, oh, we just copy and paste. I was like, well, you haven't solved the organizational problem at all. You've just entirely focused on the other problem. And it made sense for them because that was like the, the key problem at hand. Yeah. I'll convey some of my naivete here. But if you're just captioning the transformation steps, you know, you could say, well, I, I could capture that in, in Git today. But you're not. You're also kind of versioning the data that's produced. And there, there are folks who tried to produce like versioned data systems. But I guess in a sense, you're, you're combining both of those in kind of one thing. Is that correct? That you're, you're versioning both the pipeline transformations as well as the data that's produced by those pipeline transformations. Is that what makes the need for a new thing here? Yeah, I think there's a few parts. One is, I wouldn't necessarily that we say that we versioned the data as much as we versioned the definitions. So we can recreate the data set via the definitions. So that's one, I think, difference from like kind of a traditional like data set versioning. Because if I have a version data set, but I don't remember how it was built, it's a different problem, you know? And so that's one thing. The other thing is we actually do feature serving. We do that synchronization across offline and online. We do backfill, point-in-time correctness, which I won't really dive too deep into unless you, you want to, what all that means. But these are just very specific things that exist for features. Like We understand what the machine learning problem to be solved is. So we're not necessarily like more generic than something like Airflow, which in theory you could kind of build something like feature form with Airflow, but you just end up running a lot of custom stuff that we already do and we're optimized for your use case. So we're more narrow, but we solve the use case better. I think that's kind of a, a key difference. The other thing with Git, just to, you didn't quite ask this, but it comes up sometimes. It's like, well, can't I do versioning on my notebooks of Git? And the problem that we run into there especially features, it's with features unlike metrics, like with MRR, for example. If you have a company MRR metric table like per quarter, there should be one, right? <laughs> it should be right. You know, you shouldn't have a hundred of those. In machine learning, like you said, like features can have different scalings at the end. You can have different flavors of features and they all exist at once. And they're useful for different models for different reasons. So a feature store, a virtual feature store is able to keep all those versions in existence. It understands why you'd want that. It understands like within a notebook, it understands, hey, this is a feature, this is a training set, this is a, a label, this is a transformation. It's a different level. Like we view keeping track of notebooks and keeping track of the machine learning resources that you happen to find to define in the notebooks as different problems. So we're almost a repository of these resource definitions as opposed to just straight up versioning of the files. No, perfect. And then once you capture that feature definition, as you say, you can hang all the feature lifecycle things that everyone's repeating in every organization. You, you can kind of have a standard way of solving those feature lifecycle problems. Well, I love that you said that because that's kind of the magic here, I think, is the next step. We're seeing this already of some of our enterprise users. It's like a CRM. Like for a single person or a team, it's kind of a glorified spreadsheet. It understands the sales process a bit, so it can kind of help you, and it's more valuable than a spreadsheet. But it's at the enterprise use case that the value becomes like extreme. 
because the value for of Salesforce to a large organization is not, you know, the basic vanilla deployment. That's not what people use at that level. They almost use abstractions and build on top of them and they kind of define their own workflow, sales workflow in this case, into the, the CRM. And we're seeing that with, with feature form, we get requests like, hey, we don't want this feature served in production until it's been checked off by these people. Or, hey, legal has to do this. Or, hey, like these kinds of features, we want to make sure that they're never used by a model that we tag with this tag because you know we're not allowed to use it in whatever. Or if the user has this location, don't use this feature. Like these are all things that we think should be logic that should be embedded within the feature store itself because it's feature logic, it's feature workflow and lifestyle logic. So I think that that's the part of MLOps and feature stores that hasn't really been explored too deeply. I know that other people are, are doing it, I assume, are working with these large organizations as well. But I think that we don't talk about it enough. Like that's really where feature stores are going. They become this platform that ties together all these cross-functional organizations and provides that life cycle and abstractions around features. Simba, I wanted to ask you kind of one off-topic question. You mentioned at the beginning that open source or not, the end goal is to attract these enterprise customers. But I imagine some of your early adopters are individual users, maybe hobbyists on occasion, maybe they like the open source. Tell us about the journey as an open source founder in attracting enterprise attention um, eventually. I imagine that's part of what you're going through now. What does that look like? How have you found it? It's one thing that's different that I've learned. My last company was very top-down, like you cold email a VP, you sell it. This is also true of like a CRM. It's not AEs buying the CRM and the VP picking it up. With developer tools, even if you go to the VP first and you talk to them first, they're gonna push it down to your end user. Like the ICs make decisions. And you have to make the ICs happy. <laughs> like you can't just like be like, oh, who cares what the data scientists think? Like this is gonna make your organization way more organized or whatever, because the ICs will fight against it. And I'm seeing this a lot right now in MLOps where MLOps teams are deploying uh, solutions that data scientists hate or won't even use. And you know, they're kind of patting themselves on the back, like, hey, like, you know, we solved this problem, but to do it well, it has to kind of make everyone happy. So I think to get to the enterprise level, assuming you're going bottoms up, like we are, those same people, like if you work at you know, a, a large bank and you're doing data science there or MLOps there, you don't think of yourself as necessarily like, oh, I'm like an enterprise user. Like I'm boring, I only look for like enterprise. Like you need those things checked off, but that's just to make your manager, VP or director happy. So you look for them. But like you still view yourself as like an, an engineer, like anyone else, whether you're working at a startup or a big company. And so, you know, you start with those same problems. So this is true of like Kafka, right? Like Kafka obviously like has different problems that it solves for an enterprise, but engineers, solves kind of start at, at first principles, like engineering problems. So I think that the core here is just solve your user's problem, make them happy, and they will find out about you. Like enterprises are... Their data scientists and engineers are also looking at Reddit and Hacker News. Like they're not like going some like, you know, stodgy like enterprise, you know, engineering forum. No, totally. I imagine the best machine learning engineers, you have to win them over and they're going to be employed at the most exciting, you know, machine learning areas. And, and, and that's where you want your product to be used. Good. Simba, anything you wanted to add? Yeah. I mean, um, feature forms open source, like you said, like. We have a repo. You can just Google feature form, check it out. You know, we've written a lot about this before. And we have a local mode too, which I think is really new and interesting of us. You can literally just start using feature form after a pip install. Don't have to deploy anything. 
So check it out. You know, we have a Slack community. If you find anything and give us some feedback, please do. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today, Simba. You've got an amazing story. We're going to follow it closely. Maybe we'll have you on the show again. That'd be great. Thanks so much for having me. You can subscribe to the podcast and check out our community Slack and newsletter at contributor.fyi. If you like the show, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor. Contributor.